I've been aware of Pikmin's existence since I first got my GameCube nearly 20 years ago. The preview on my Luigi's Mansion disc was tantalizing, and as I grew up, the game received two sequels. I followed Chugga Conroy's Pikmin playthrough closely when it was airing. Despite having every opportunity to jump into the series since it began in 2001, I first played through the Pikmin series just this year, and I'm still kicking my past self for not taking the plunge. Pikmin is a wonderful journey. It streamlines real-time strategy mechanics for simplicity and accessibility, yet with such intelligently implemented concepts. It sells an atmosphere of tension in both narrative and gameplay context throughout the series. It uses subtlety to its advantage to tell a story about the consequences humans as a species have inflicted on the world. Pikmin is all sorts of different things, and yet, at its core, it's just about throwing plants at frogs and rounding up supplies. But let's take a step back. If you've never played Pikmin and want to familiarize yourself with it, or if you just want to remember the good old days, allow me to take you on a journey through the Forest of Hope, the Submerged Castle, the Formidable Oak, and everywhere in between. No stone on PNF 404 will be left unturned. Let's analyze the series' design to find out what warrants its acclaim. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is Pikmin. Space World 2000, Nintendo lifts the curtain on their 6th generation console, the GameCube. In the coming months, the system's technical prowess becomes clearer and clearer. Luigi's Mansion, a launch title for the GameCube, showcased realistic lighting and shadows, as well as impressive model, texture, and anti-aliasing quality. Games like Metroid Prime and Super Smash Bros. Melee were able to mirror these technical achievements and maintain a steady 60 frames per second. The GameCube was capable of producing some high-quality visuals, and pair that with Nintendo's talented developers, and you have a console worth buying. It was even cheaper than both the PS2 and the Xbox, and in retrospect it was at least more powerful than the PS2. One of the pieces of software shown was something called Super Mario 128. It demonstrated how many characters could be on screen, and how the environment could change in real time, all without even taking up half of the system's resources. Shigeru Miyamoto would later state that this technology made Pikmin possible. Nintendo took the graphical possibilities of the GameCube to create a realistic world for the Pikmin to exist in, and the processor allowed for a multitude of units to be on screen at once. They had their setting, but they had a hard time settling on the gameplay concept. Director Shigefu Mihino once recollected on the moment he knew where the game was headed. I can still clearly recall the first time that I saw multiple Pikmin working together to carry a big opponent. Until then, we had been struggling to find the direction that this game should have. But when these carry actions were completed, we were able to determine the future of Pikmin. Pikmin was released in Japan on October 26, 2001. Pikmin as a series is Nintendo's first and only take on the real-time strategy genre. Since they had already established genres of their own, with Mario and Zelda setting a precedent for game design, redefining a genre should come naturally to them. The major difference between Pikmin and other RTS games is that you directly take part in everything that happens in the world, rather than controlling an omnipotent being from the skies. This means a certain level of skill is involved in combat, not just careful planning before executing orders. In addition, you need to be able to micromanage multiple tasks while running around in the world. You can't just dart over to your base to fend off enemies, you need to make sure you've got that under control before you venture out into the deeper parts of each level. 
This is but an introduction to its genius design. When Pikmin was initially released, it became an instant hit. It may not have shipped millions upon millions of copies, but it blew both critics and consumers away. Me personally? It's one of my favorite games of all time. If I were to pitch Pikmin to somebody who has never played it, I would say it is the best game about war that isn't explicitly about war. A game that looks like this conveys the feeling of loss, isolation, and resource management, and it does so beautifully. It is also easily my favorite RTS game, bar none. I know this is all exceptionally high praise, but hear me out. In Pikmin, Captain Olimar crash lands his beloved dolphin on a strange planet that very closely resembles Earth. The stakes are made immediately apparent in this game. Olimar has 30 days to gather his 30 missing ship parts, otherwise his life support systems will fail, and the planet's poisonous oxygen will kill him. This doesn't seem like such a difficult task. Just recover one part per day, right? Well, that's where things get tricky. You'll need to balance that with harvesting Pikmin, taking care of enemies, searching the levels, solving puzzles, opening shortcuts for Pikmin to carry items through to maximize efficiency, and killing powerful bosses with specific weaknesses. To counteract these daunting tasks, the game's tutorial is as simple as it could possibly be. Olimar discovers the onion that is home to red Pikmin, and he proceeds to harvest them by collecting designated pellets throughout the impact site. Once you learn how to control them, you can utilize the Pikmin for tasks like breaking down walls and moving boxes. But once you have a greater number of them, they can be used to transport the first of the 30 missing ship parts. It's important that this first day conveys this information with relatively little danger. Because day two has you visiting the Forest of Hope, and it immediately thrusts you into the thick of things. Enemies are now abundant, there's a time limit of roughly 13 minutes per day, and the level has much more to uncover. Your limited knowledge of the level layout, combined with the continuous race against time, cast an atmosphere of isolation. And this means you need to gather what knowledge you have of the game's mechanics, and conquer your fears. This remains prevalent throughout the entire game, and it's what makes Pikmin special. Let's take a look at how it employs the Sphere of the Unknown. First, each enemy you encounter will have different attributes, attacks, and threats that are immediately apparent to your Pikmin. On top of that, you don't have much of an idea of how to approach them. Should I throw my Pikmin? Should I swarm the enemy with the C-Stick? Well, the only way to find out is by engaging the enemy. Again, conquering your Fear of the Unknown is what it's all about. Small bulb orbs aren't a huge threat and can even be killed by throwing a Pikmin directly on top of them, which is also the case for other small enemies. And the regular sized bulb orbs act in primarily the same way, but they aren't as easily aggroed. What they can do is eat more Pikmin at once, so sneaking up on it is encouraged. Bulb orbs may be common throughout the Forest of Hope, but they're used sparingly throughout the rest of the game. And this is done for a reason. The Forest Naval introduces you to several scarier enemy types with attributes that you can only become aware of by directly confronting them. For example, Blowhogs shoot fire if anything gets up in its grill, and in the event of that happening, you'd better be able to save the Pikmin that catch fire. This is where it becomes apparent that the Red Pikmin can withstand fire, and thus you can choose to have a group of them by your side as you traverse the Blowhog-heavy areas of the level. This is but one way Pikmin shows you how your troops will react to the enemies and you can now apply this knowledge to deal with tough situations accordingly. Other times, you'll need to have a group of blue Pikmin handy to navigate pools of water and deal with water-based enemies. Yellow Pikmin are handy in blowing up rock walls, reaching high objects, and attacking taller, airborne enemies. Getting to know your units through practical application 
is something I wish more RTS games did. It really sells the feeling of being alone on this planet, slowly learning about the creatures around you. Most games in this genre inform you of your unit's capabilities from the get-go, so you're able to strategize from the beginning of a mission. But Pikmin is a simple enough game that it can give you the satisfaction of learning on the fly. By working your way through hordes of enemies, you just might discover a boss enemy guarding one of your ship parts. If you're resourceful enough to get to this point, then chances are you've at least been able to observe an enemy's strengths and weaknesses. I mean, to even encounter a boss, you have to have traveled to the Forest Naval, since both entrances to boss battles in the Forest of Hope are surrounded by water. And in the Forest Naval, you encounter enemies that force you to observe before attacking. Now this is what we call an invisible tutorial. I know Game Maker's Toolkit coined this term already, but this is one of my favorite things in game design. Learning about the game when you're not even conscious to the fact that you're learning about the game. From this point onward, I would be patient with my enemy, learn its patterns. Then I would strike when I saw an opening. For example, the Armored Cannon Beetle. This was the first boss I encountered on my initial playthrough, and just like the rest of the game, it's about conquering your fears. This thing shoots boulders out of its blowhole, and this can be a danger to lingering Pikmin. However, it sucks in air before that happens, so that's your opening. You need to throw your Pikmin in there before it shoots a boulder. This could cost some Pikmin their lives if you're not careful, but if done correctly, you'll be able to wail on it. The risk is scary, but it's necessary if you want to repair your ship. Not to mention, if you lose a great number of Pikmin in battle, you can always carry the carcass to whichever onion you like and create more Pikmin. Staying on top of your Pikmin population is also as important as acquainting yourself with the levels. Even if you're confident you have enough Pikmin to make up for potential losses, you have no way of knowing what will happen in the future. In the event that a large group of Pikmin die, you'll have more to fall back on. So, on top of exploring for parts and clearing levels of enemies, you'll need to gather more pellets and enemy carcasses. The multitasking that this requires in order to complete the game in under 30 days is what will finally allow you to get good at Pikmin. All of this, whether you are aware of it or not, is connected. It's up to you to take action and balance your tasks so you can efficiently repair your ship. And I love it. I love how this game forces me to face my fears. Of course, recovering parts haphazardly will cause you to become scatterbrained. This is where the genius level design of Pikmin comes into play. Although there are only three full-on levels in Pikmin, each of them are created with a careful amount of detail. Pikmin level design is mostly about pathfinding, and your tutorial lies within the Forest of Hope. Since you won't have a map when you're just starting out, you'll have to stick to the areas that you know you'll be able to search. This is where you meet the bullworbs and such, but as you tear down that first gate, you'll find the yellow onion. This opens up a few paths after you harvest some yellow Pikmin. You'll be able to blow up bombable walls and reach parts on high ledges. Thanks to the yellow Pikmin, you'll be able to create a shortcut back to home base and retrieve your whimsical radar, enabling your map and allowing you to plan out the route to your next part from now on. Efficiency, exploration, and combat are all taught and tested in your first moments exploring the Forest of Hope. Once you grab the parts that you're currently able to retrieve, you can finally set off for the Forest Naval. Now, the Forest Naval isn't just a scary level because of the enemies within. It's also scary because of how it cripples your efficiency. Pikmin need to take a long path to get parts back to the Dolphin, so in the meantime you need to scout for bomb rocks to open shortcuts. Doing so cuts down on the time you could be using to explore for parts, so you need to be careful. So if you decide to spend the day harvesting blue Pikmin and then you head back to the Forest of Hope, not only will you be more comfortable, you'll be able to explore every corner of the level in any way you like. The most efficient path to each part is up to you to discover though, and that's what makes the Forest of Hope special. It puts the pieces into place in a relatively linear fashion, and once you finally find Blue Pikmin, the level opens up to you completely. 
You'll be able to cross through the water and build a bridge back to base, for example. To be fair, the entire game is available to you once you have all three types of Pikmin, but the Forest of Hope is way more manageable at this stage. It provides a great challenge with its myriad of tasks and enemies to fight, but it's also easy to wrap your head around. The Forest Naval is the opposite. It's a massive level shrouded in darkness with various shortcuts that you have to set up yourself. Making your way through its various enemies in order to retrieve everything is no small feat, and it focuses heavily on conquering your fears. The parts that lie across the field of Blowhogs are especially tricky to retrieve, as you need to make sure that your Pikmin have a path. I always saw two options here. Either clear out all the Blowhogs to both raise your population and clear a path later on, or save time by escorting the Pikmin carefully through an active field of them. Even then, that pulls you away from other tasks that you could be tending to in the meantime. But it's faster in the moment. It's up to you to seek out your priorities. And I love that. There are also more complex solutions to problems here that you have to figure out. The one moment that always comes to mind is the portion that requires using all three Pikmin types in tandem to retrieve a gem that sits atop a ledge. It'll take some time to work this out, and you also need to be wary of the fire geysers in the ground whilst navigating this area. It's another portion that requires your full attention, and can't be balanced between other tasks. This is where planning becomes important. You need to prioritize which parts you need most, and which parts you can grab in the least amount of time, over the ones that might be tricky. That day limit is still looming over you after all. However, there may be some close and tantalizing parts that you can retrieve while you allow a group of Pikmin to carry another part back that's just waiting to be picked up. The whimsical radar is great at allowing the player to pathfind ahead of time, but most of the time these parts lie in the areas of the level you've never explored. This creates fear of the unknown once more, and this isolation can only be conquered by trailblazing yourself. The fear of the unknown comes to a head in the forest naval when you bust down this wall and encounter beady longlegs. I can't say I was expecting this thing to fall from the sky when I walked into this sand pit, and figuring out how to deal with this thing on the fly is frightening. But hey, that's what Pikmin is all about. The Distant Spring is the last big level you'll be visiting, and while it isn't as threatening as the darkness of the Forest Naval, instead carrying with it a more serene atmosphere, it's still big, and it boasts both powerful enemies and tricky puzzles. The Distant Spring quickly became my favorite level because of how challenging it is to navigate and manage without spreading yourself too thin. You'll need to manage clearing the area of its new enemy types, like bull bears and those freaking jumping wally hops, the enemies here are not easy to take down, but they're a necessary evil. The level has lots of wide open space for you and your battalion to trek through, so the enemies are there to keep pressure on you. The vast amount of water also requires you to have a decent amount of blue Pikmin on standby, both for retrieving parts and for killing waterborne enemies that might stand in your way. Puzzles will require your full attention here. The most involved one is perhaps the one where you need to use Candy Pop Buds to transfer Pikmin types. First, yellow Pikmin to retrieve the part, and blue Pikmin to carry it through the water. There's also the Pikmin maze with the clever utilization of the swarm mechanic to maneuver the Pikmin with Olimar across a walled ledge. The Distant Spring balances all of this stuff to create the most intense and time-consuming level in the game, and its relentlessness will force you to question the buffer of parts you might have set up by then, which is appropriate. By the time you've retrieved 29 parts, you'll finally be able to travel to the game's final level, aptly named the Final Trial. It has you use all three Pikmin types in tandem to clear a path to the final boss. This boss is... kinda trash, I'm not gonna lie. The stun from the bomb rocks doesn't last very long, his attacks are fast and obnoxious, and he takes a ton of hits. Most of the time I just stack bomb rocks to achieve a longer stun, and then I just wail on him until he dies. But it's a minor hiccup in such a worthwhile adventure. What I want to note is that there's no guarantee you'll make it this far. By day 30, 
you may barely have just over 20 parts. As long as you have 25, you'll be able to make your escape, but there's a distinction between the two happy endings. When the dolphin is fully repaired, Olimar gives a proper goodbye to the Pikmin before taking off, and the Pikmin fight back against a Bulborb, implying that you gave them the courage to repopulate their species and retake their planet. The other ending just has them stare longingly at the dolphin, wondering if Olimar will ever come back. Both endings are fulfilling after such an arduous task being completed though, without a doubt. But I bet you're wondering what I think of the bad ending, right? If you don't acquire the necessary 25 parts and attempt to take off on day 30, the dolphin will come crashing to the ground. The Pikmin will carry Olimar to an onion and turn him into a Pikmin-person hybrid. Yup. Olimar never sees his family again, and it's unclear what's going to happen to him now. Hey, that's the reality of his situation, and you're facing the consequences of your inability to save Olimar's life. That's war, kid. Yeah. That's definitely what made Pikmin stand out to me as an interpretation of war. It's attention to detail and its setting and overall context. The more I played, the more I began to connect with what was happening. It's a desolate earth completely void of human life. All that's left are deformed remnants of what were once creatures that roamed the earth we used to know. And Pikmin. All the Pikmin had known before Olimar arrived was danger. As Olimar, it's your job to rebuild their population from scratch, and allow them to make whatever's left of this planet a better place to call home. What I find most compelling about the Pikmin is their willingness to follow Olimar no matter what. They aren't just following him mindlessly, they're following him in the hopes that they could repopulate their species. They're aware of the danger that they're facing, but because they have a leader, they just might have a chance. A song called Ai no Uta, or Song of Love, was released in conjunction with the game by the virtual band Strawberry Flower. Think gorillas, but made up entirely of Pikmin. It became identifiable in Japan, and everyone there knew the lyrics from the Pikmin commercials on TV. The song not only sold more copies of the game there, it also outsold the game in Japan altogether. It's a lovely song, and its existence is justified. The song sheds light on the game's overarching theme, and further connects you with the ideals of the Pikmin themselves. I talked about the Pikmin's willingness to follow you in their dire circumstances, right? Well, appropriately, the song puts you inside the mind of the Pikmin throughout the game. They've accepted the reality of the situation. This last verse is heartbreaking. We'll fight, be silent, and follow you. But we won't ask you to love us. Losing Pikmin may hurt because of the time you then have to spend regrowing them, but what hurts most is thinking about the circumstances they've put themselves in, and how they're perfectly okay with putting their lives on the line in the names of their species. For this, I salute the brave Pikmin that fell in battle and I apologize to the Pikmin I recklessly and foolishly let die. Despite individual Pikmin not having unique identities, there is one mechanic that sells this connection I'm talking about. If Pikmin drink nectar or remain in your party for a certain period of time, they'll sprout a flower. These units are more powerful and thus can perform any task much more efficiently than the others, and losing them hurts much more than losing other Pikmin, as if you'd lost a friend that fought closely by your side. Well, maybe not that much, but you can see what I'm getting at, right? They're easily identifiable, and thus when you lose them, it hurts in a gameplay and narrative context. Pikmin Extinction is also a possibility in this game, and the day immediately ends if this happens. Olimar's comments on the matter are haunting. The Pikmin have all perished because of my own carelessness. I am an utter disgrace as a leader. How could I continue to collect parts without them? Still the onions join me in low orbit, as if this Pikmin Extinction had never happened. I shan't sleep tonight. 
Of course, the game can't continue without Pikmin, so each onion will produce a single Pikmin of the corresponding colors to get you started the next day. But a full-on extinction hurts both from a gameplay perspective and an emotional perspective. But hey, that's war. You spend so much time connecting with these people that it becomes incredibly difficult when they join one of thousands of names on a war memorial. Of all the games I've played that represent the consequences of warfare, I think Pikmin does it best. Not only is it a well-crafted RTS that pushes tension without sacrificing fun, with beautifully designed levels that strengthen the game's philosophy, it tells a harrowing story about death, war, and extinction in a game that has a box art looking like this! I know all the Pikmin are running for their lives and everything, but it looks goofy enough that surely it can't convey such feelings, right? Well, after spending countless hours on the game, I'm happy to say that I've been proven dead wrong. Pikmin is a beautiful game in every respect, and one I'll gladly replay for years to come. It's also a fun game to replay. I always like seeing how fast I can collect all 30 parts on each subsequent playthrough. It's a self-imposed challenge, and it makes Pikmin that much more replayable. Really, the fun never ends with this game. It's not just a great RTS game. It redefines what an RTS can be. And I love the heck out of it. Pikmin may not have sold outstandingly, but its success in Japan at the very least was enough to convince the executives at Nintendo that a sequel would make a profit. Either that or Nintendo was willing to let Miyamoto do whatever he wants, even if it doesn't make enough money. See, after the GameCube became Nintendo's main focus, many of Miyamoto's creations began to slip out of his fingers. Future Mario games would be directed by Yoshiaki Koizumi, and after Eiji Aonuma proved himself with Majora's Mask, he would go on to direct more Zelda games in the future. Miyamoto still served as a producer on these games, but above all else, Miyamoto remained front and center regarding the Pikmin series. He may not have directed any of the games, but he talks about it as if he has a great amount of control over its design. Pikmin 2 was confirmed by Miyamoto to be in development in December 2002, and it eventually released on April 29, 2004 in Japan. It became the highest rated game in the Pikmin series, and I constantly see people talk about it as if it's the golden child. Honestly, it's not my cup of tea. But do I understand the appeal? Yes, absolutely. Pikmin 2 largely deviates from the first game's established rules. There's no 30-day time limit, and there are procedurally generated caves containing treasure for you to collect. Once you have at least 10,000 Pokos, you can go back to your home planet. That's only half of the possible treasure for you to collect, though. And because of this, it seems as if Pikmin 2 is designed to allow anyone to get into it. It's not about forcing yourself to face your fears and race against time to repair your ship. You can take as much time as you like collecting treasure here. I was justified in thinking this game was more accessible at first, and yet, I believe I was wrong. Pikmin 2 will turn you into a goddamn Pikmin master. Pikmin blood will be coursing through your veins. You'll be seeing their beady little eyes as you try to sleep at night. And then, just as you're about to doze off, you'll see the Wraith. Pikmin 2 will definitely be more difficult for players accustomed to the first game's design because of the caves. The caves take center stage, and honestly it gets to the point where I don't even feel like this is a sequel to Pikmin. It's a Pikmin game for sure, but it's a weird roguelike spin-off. I'm getting ahead of myself though. Let's break down Pikmin 2 and see why I think it's an incredible, yet highly flawed game. So, Pikmin 2 drops you in the middle of a snowy field and teaches you about the core mechanics of Pikmin once more. 
It takes a lot longer than it did in the first game because for some reason, the dolphin talks to you. Some of the dolphin's dialogue can be entertaining, but it's mostly an intrusive method of relaying information to you. One of the primary things the game wants you to become accustomed to is controlling two characters at once. On this voyage, Olimar is joined by a rookie adventurer named Louis. Controlling these two characters in tandem means taking on more tasks at once. There are a few instances where the game requires you to use both captains, and most of these inclusions feel arbitrary at best, as all they really do is waste time. For example, lifting one captain up from a secondary path so they can transfer the Pikmin to you. It's not fun and interesting in any way, it just takes more time out of your day. What makes this mechanic work best is the ingenuity it requires of the player. Since there are very few specifically stated uses for the two captains, it's your job to figure out what will create efficiency. For example, using two groups to carry out two big tasks at once, splitting up in a cave to explore both corners. These aren't things the game tells you to do, you just have to figure them out on your own. For such an overbearing tutorial, I'm happy that they didn't go over the possibilities for the two captains working together. This is one of the only mechanics that I feel genuinely evolves on the first game's established formula. As the timer is ticking down above ground, you can feel comfortable in knowing that you have a second captain to manage the workload. The removal of the 30-day time limit does take a lot of the urgency out of the above-ground activities, though. Even if you don't have enough time in the day to harvest some chunky pellets, create some sprays out of berries, or bring back a treasure, they'll still be waiting for you in the morning. You can take your sweet time doing whatever you like in this game, and you won't ever be punished for it. Caves don't even have a time limit, but there's a trade-off there that we'll discuss soon. The point is, Pikmin 2 lacks urgency. Some have said that the day limit was removed due to criticism, but in actuality, it was for design reasons. Takashi Tezuka and Shigafumi Hino have both said that the day limit was removed to encourage collecting treasure, which is a stance that is very, very believable if you've ever played Pikmin 2. The game is all about collecting treasure. You gotta check every corner of every level and every cave for every last bit of coinage that you could possibly unearth. This is relatively easy above ground, but if you want that 10,000 Poco debt to be paid off, you'd better start plummeting into those caves. This is where the majority of your time will be spent with Pikmin 2, so you'd better get used to them. They're all procedurally generated, so each trip into the cave will be different than your last if you leave early or die. This procedural generation can be both a blessing and a curse, as occasionally, you'll fall down right next to a treasure. <laughs> procedural generation doesn't matter much in the grand scheme of things, though. It's just a nice way of introducing organically changing variety into cave design. What actually sets the caves apart are their central themes. For example, the first few caves are all about teaching you the ins and outs of what you'll be up against. But caves like the Shower Room, the Glutton's Kitchen, and Snaggart Hole all have quirks that make them stand out. The Shower Room features primarily water-based hazards and enemies, but there's still enough variety in its enemies to keep you from sticking to blue Pikmin. It's well-rounded. The Glutton's Kitchen features treasures that are based on food, levels designed like a child's playset, and enemies that will try to steal your food. Snaggret Hole balances different ideas for each floor to create a cave that aims to surprise and intrigue. These three caves represent Pikmin 2 at its best. Even if you're not interested in grabbing every treasure, you can still enjoy the variety of challenges the game throws at you. It's also not exactly a cakewalk. This game is hard. In caves, you need to get to the end to actually keep your treasure. You can spend as much time as you like collecting it, but not every treasure will be easy to obtain. In addition, you cannot create any new Pikmin in caves. Those that die cannot be replaced, so you have to be careful not to let your numbers dwindle. Since caves are filled with enemies, that's not going to be easy. 
And there's usually a final boss at the end of each cave. You can transform your Pikmin into other types using the returning Candy Pop Buds, but that's it. So, there's a huge feeling of risk versus reward whenever you collect treasure and fight enemies in caves, and this is used as a replacement for the tension that the time limit would create otherwise. I'm a fan of this! It's a natural form of tension that the game creates without enforcing these overarching rules on you. The tension comes from how safe or skilled you feel when in caves, and that organically creates challenge. Speaking of which, there are two new Pikmin in this game that can only be created through these candy pop buds in caves. White Pik- Really? White Pikmin and Purple Pikmin. White Pikmin can deal with poisonous hazards, and Purple Pikmin are hefty fellas that can hit hard and carry heavy objects no problem. Because these Pikmin are so rare, you need to protect them with your life. It'll make getting through the various poisonous hazards this game loves to include bearable, and you'll be able to carry your treasures back to the ship much faster and more efficiently. With all this in mind, it seems like caves are an ideal method of creating tension this time around. So then, why did tension turn to stress for me as the game progressed? Well, that's because of Pikmin 2's focus on collecting treasure. It's one of the most inaccessible things I've seen in a Pikmin game to this day. Essentially, there are two ways to play this game. Beating it and viewing the credits, and collecting all the treasure. The gap between these two goals is marginally wider than the gap in the last game. Finding all of your ship parts and escaping was a non-negotiable task. This was what you had to do in order to finish the game. Thus, the game was designed to accommodate for finding each ship part. It may have been scary to venture off into the unknown, but it was what you had to do to get a bigger picture of the level layout. Here, you have an unlimited amount of time to retrieve 10,000 Pokos worth of treasure, but that's only half of the treasure in the game. Thus, treasure is hidden everywhere, some of them in very stressful areas and you don't know how much of a buffer you'll have if you decide to skip the tricky ones. If you decide to go after these treasures, your skills will be tested. You'll have to be very careful because if you lose Pikmin in a cave, you'll have to deal with those losses until you escape. This becomes stress when you're just trying to take care of the game's main goal. Tension versus stress is a topic that I think has persisted throughout Pikmin's life, and the line between the two has been straddled since the series' inception. The first game only crossed over into stress if you were incapable of catching up after falling behind on ship parts. Hypothetically, every part could be collected in under 10 days with enough practice, so it's all about planning and knowledge. And I've already discussed how the game lays out the foundation for a successful run. In Pikmin 2, caves can be an absolute detriment to player morale. If you're just in the cave to meet your quota, losing Pikmin will just cost you your ability to manage more tasks. In fact, some treasures may not even be possible to carry back after a certain point, because you won't have enough Pikmin. The game is asking a lot of the player. It's asking them to prevent Pikmin deaths almost flawlessly, and grab everything to learn the most about enemies and cave structure. Plus, it's a crapshoot as to whether or not you'll have enough money by the end of the bare minimum goal. In that sense, playing Pikmin 2 like a completionist is pretty much the only way to fully enjoy this game. By throwing yourself into more battles and gathering more treasure, you'll be learning more about how the game works and what challenges you need to prepare yourself for. By spending more time harvesting Pikmin, you'll be able to make up for potential losses. Pikmin 2 is asking a lot of the player this way, and it feels highly unbalanced depending on player preference. It doesn't help that caves can get really repetitive after a while. Even when I decided to go all in and collect every treasure in order to get the most out of the game, a lot of the caves felt the same. This shouldn't be the case though. Procedural generation exists, so that should be enough to keep things fresh, right? Well, artificially masking a lack of variety in a cave with RNG is pretty lame. The Citadel of Spiders has a ton of bugs, and the Frontier Cavern has a lot of bulborbs. 
Using different enemies is not enough, and no matter how I decided to play the game, I'd get bored. Speaking of which, some caves decide to include useful upgrades for your suit. That's good, but there's no way of knowing which ones contain said upgrades. So if you're just trying to get an extra kick while paying off the initial debt, oh well. You have to guess where the upgrades lie. Again, the game really wants you to check every cave and gather every bit of treasure. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but that's why I can't get into Pikmin 2, and I know I'm not going to be alone on that front. It's a great game, but it's such a massive time sink, and the energy it asks you to exert proved to be too much for me. However, if you can get behind its focus on treasure, Pikmin 2 might become one of your favorite games. That divide bothers me though. I wish there was some aspect of this game that balanced both playstyles, something that provided the organic tension of caves, while also hiding treasure in clever places. These two elements working in tandem. On a surface level, it's scary yet fun, but the more you put into it, the more fun you have. Oh wait, I just described the submerged castle. This is easily the best cave in Pikmin 2, and it's only 5 floors. Because you can only bring blue Pikmin into the cave, you'll need to use the rare Bulbman enemy, which can be taken over and commanded as part of your group. And they're immune to everything. This allows you to strategize based on hazard type and Pikmin population. But you also have to be careful that your Bulbman don't die if you want to gather treasure. That's not why I've singled this level out though. The reason this level is great is because of the Water Wraith, a scary behemoth of an enemy that can only be made vulnerable by purple Pikmin. But because you can't bring purple Pikmin into the cave, you need to make it to the final floor and find the Candy Pop Bud to deal any damage to it. It appears randomly, but it makes your time in the cave much scarier no matter how you decide to play. If you try to grab every treasure, you have to spend more time avoiding the Water Wraith. There's an air of uncertainty with this thing, so no matter where your priorities lie, you'll always have something looming over you as you solve each floor. And the more effort you put into the cave, the more fun it'll prove to be. It actually encourages you to search every corner, because it's simply fun to do so. I wish there were more caves that put a new challenge in place and asked you to solve it on the fly. Better yet, I wish there were caves that balanced Pikmin 2's very different, yet distinct playstyles. And that's why the submerged castle was worth discovering. Indeed, Pikmin 2 needed to find that balance. The last handful of caves that show up after the game's initial 10,000 Poco debt is paid off are very clearly designed for completionists. The Dream Den, for example, is an endurance test. There are a plethora of difficult floors to survive, and keeping your Pikmin alive throughout the entire thing is a ridiculous task if you want every treasure. But maybe it's just because I'm not putting the time in. Maybe it's because this game just isn't for me, right? I don't know, I don't buy that. Pikmin 2 had everything it needed to balance completionism and finishism. Is that a word? You get the idea. Perhaps cooperative multiplayer between Olimar and Louie would have made things more manageable. It may have even been enough to convince me of collecting all the treasure. Thankfully I was able to find out what this would have been like in the game's cooperative multiplayer mode. The levels designed for this mode aren't great, but my philosophy stands. Dividing the workload between two players and communicating during combat is a ton of fun. I can only imagine what the main game would have been like with co-op. Supposedly, it almost had co-op, but it was dropped because it caused problems with the game's core design. Tezuka and Hino didn't specify what these problems were, but I suspect they thought micromanagement would have been much easier, thus destroying tension in certain levels. However, I believe that every problem has a solution, especially in game design. Something that seems impossible can be solved with enough thought. That's how Super Mario 64's full analog control and camera system were created. And hey, 
Miyamoto wasn't done with taking on design challenges after that game. Back when the sequel to Super Mario 64 was going to be called Super Mario 64 2, Shigeru Miyamoto discussed implementing 4-player cooperative multiplayer. He said, Each screen would need to be very small, and we would have to implement new camera work. But it's these sort of problems that I like to tackle. Because of all this, I believe Pikmin 2 could have worked with a cooperative feature, and the game would have benefited from it. Imagine coordinating Pikmin harvesting in the overworld with a friend, or having them grab specific Pikmin from the Onion for a job, and bringing them to you as you clear the enemies out from that area. These are things you can do in single player, but the micromanagement between Olimar and Louie would be a lot less cumbersome, and way more fun. Imagine breaking off in caves to explore different portions, and bringing back treasures in pairs. I think the only hole in this would be boss design. Bosses would have to be designed around multiple players at once. Ultimately, if Pikmin 2 was designed around co-op, I have a feeling I would enjoy it a lot more. Like, as much as I enjoyed the first game. Although for different reasons, obviously. In the end though, this is the game we received. It's a great game if you can get behind its core philosophy, but the tension tips over into stress when you're just trying to finish it. It's not for everyone, and that's what makes it flawed. I would love to see a spiritual successor that fine-tunes the philosophy of this game, but perhaps it's best to just move on. If Pikmin 2 was any indication, doing something different with each Pikmin game just might be the best course of action. In video game culture, anticipation for a sequel can prove to be a very toxic and sometimes fatal beast. That's why it's a good idea not to announce something too early in development. For example, Team Fortress 2. After the Quake modding team was hired by Valve to port their game to Gold Source, they got to work on Team Fortress 2 Brotherhood of Arms, a realistic tactical military shooter. After its first showing at E3 1999, the game was delayed in 2000, and the notorious radio silence began. When it reappeared seven years later, it was a completely different game in gameplay and tone. But as we know, it pioneered an entire subgenre of shooters. If you announce something far too early in development, the least you could do is be transparent with your audience. With Nintendo having the courage to announce that Metroid Prime 4 had to restart from scratch, you'd think that they'd be setting an example for companies like Valve. But no, they're as guilty as the rest of them. After Pikmin 2 was released, there was a three-year drought of information on a new Pikmin game. Both games sold passably worldwide considering the GameCube's install base and the niche audience for the games themselves, but even with that notion, there was no guarantee the series would continue. Nintendo will release its Marios and Zeldas as the years go by, as they are both critical and commercial juggernauts, in addition to being recognizable franchises. But Pikmin? Not exactly. It enjoyed success in Japan at the very least, but less so in Western territories. Fans didn't know what the future held for Captain Olimar and the Pikmin. Then, the radio silence would be broken by who else but Miyamoto in 2007, in an interview with IGN. I certainly don't think we've seen the last of Pikmin. I definitely would like to do something with them, and I think the Wii interface in particular is very well suited to that franchise. Sure enough, a new Pikmin game was confirmed at E3 2008 for the Nintendo Wii. Yeah, that didn't last, did it? The same old silence continued for another three years until Miyamoto stated the project had moved to the Wii U at E3 2011. That's six years of nothing in total. The game was finally shown off at E3 2012 and was slated to launch with the Wii U, but it ended up getting delayed for almost an entire year. 
When the game initially released on July 13th, 2013, fans had waited a total of 9 years for a sequel to Pikmin 2, or 5 if you subtract the years before the official announcement. Transparency during development is an extremely important thing. When a game falls off the face of the earth after an initial announcement, it's scary. It makes people like me think that I won't be able to have that experience. But that's a discussion for another time. Pikmin 3 is here, and it's been available for 6 years as of this video's release. Let's see how it stacks up against the previous two games. Man, I can immediately shower praise on Pikmin 3's overall astounding presentation. They spent a lot of time creating this game's overall look and feel. Finally, the game is using live instruments for its soundtrack. Thankfully, Super Mario Galaxy made orchestral scores the standard for first-party Nintendo games, and it's paid tremendous dividends. The compositions breathe so much life into every level. For example, the Garden of Hope's welcoming overture. Twilight River's bumbling curiosity, the distant tundra's chilling instrumentals that simultaneously call to adventure, and the serene yet overall eerie vibe of the rain music. It's all incredibly well done, and overdue for a Pikmin game. This is also very easily a contender for the best looking Wii U game I've ever played. Pikmin promotional material has always had the characters appear in realistic environments, and I believe that's reflective of the game's nature. It appears cute, and yet it's about such concepts as the reality of war and death. These characters are waddling around in such a realistic depiction of Earth, so why not reflect that with modern technology? The Wii U CPU was equivalent to that of one released in 1998, but the GPU was able to handle some beautiful visuals. Those that knew how to utilize the console were able to achieve some pretty results. Unfortunately, only Nintendo knew how to use their weirdly bottlenecked console, so games like Mario Kart 8 and Breath of the Wild would be the best examples outside of Pikmin 3. But both have compromises. Mario Kart 8 has the player blazing past most of its visual assets, so you don't have much time to take them in. You only get a small sample of what work went into each level's art direction. Breath of the Wild gives you this time, but it's highly stylized. Pikmin 3 places characters up close and personal with the planet, 
and as such it's important to create detailed textures and a proper lighting engine to make the world come to life. Miyamoto said in an interview that the HD graphics of the console would suit Pikmin well, and he was very much right about that. It sells the setting of the game quite well. Although we are unfortunately lacking the ingenious product placement of Pikmin 2 that convinced me of the world once being lived in, the game has taken subtle steps to convince me that the world was once lived in by us, and that it has a climate and ecosystem. For starters, the new pilots from Kopai have dubbed this planet PNF-404, and the geography for one of its continents seems to at least partially reflect Australia. But it goes further than that. The continent fused with Australia is Antarctica, according to what scientists predict the Earth will look like 250 million years from now. It's a small detail, but it sells the setting of Pikmin 3. And considering what this game is about, it relays a scary environmental message. The three travelers from planet Kopai, named Alf, Brittany, and Charlie, are headed for PNF-404 in order to cure Kopai's famine. In their travels, they accidentally crash land on the planet and become separated. The tutorial then has you switching between the travelers as you learn how to play, in one of the cutest tutorial sequences I've seen in the game. It teaches you how to control the Pikmin and deal with different situations, while some goofy antics unfold. Not exactly an invisible tutorial, but one that doesn't treat you like an idiot, and entertains you. This is where the miscellaneous tweaks to combat become apparent if you've played the first two games. Unfortunately, the useful swarm mechanic has been replaced by a charge mechanic that appears when locking onto enemies. This isn't nearly as free-form, but enemies are also designed around this move. In fact, a lot of tweaks to combat have been for the best. Enemies now react more dynamically to Pikmin attacking them thanks to improved artificial intelligence. Speaking of which, the Pikmin themselves are smarter and more self-reliant. In the original game, there were times when I'd disband my Pikmin and some of them would do their own thing. This could lead to them tumbling into nearby water or attacking nearby bulborbs and endangering themselves. Pikmin 2 alleviated the issues artificial intelligence faced, but not to the extent Pikmin 3 does. Speaking of the Pikmin, there are two new types this time around. Rock Pikmin and Winged Pikmin. That's right, we've evolved past colors. But they've put an emphasis on their types for a reason. That's because Pikmin 3 is all about critical thinking. It's about solving complex puzzles to gather resources and thinking on the fly, knowing which Pikmin to use when, and combining their efforts depending on the situation. A lot of the levels in this game focus on large puzzles that often reward you with either narrative progression or food for your explorers. For example, one of your goals might be to build a bridge connecting from both sides of a river by controlling two explorers at once. This puzzle in particular is where you learn how to use yellow Pikmin, which were repurposed in Pikmin 2 to be resistant to electricity. Brittany uses yellow Pikmin to solve a cave and escape into her side of the tundra, while Alf scours the rest of the area for parts and food. After solving both areas, you'll finally be reunited and you can reach new areas together. Pikmin 3 is really good at keeping you consistently engaged when progressing through levels or recovering fruit, dividing Pikmin and exploring evenly so you can fetch a fruit lying across weighted platforms, controlling one explorer in the water and two on different platforms in an effort to build bridges and gather food in one seamless puzzle. Pikmin 3's focus on great level and puzzle design is what makes it such a stellar and unique RTS. And thanks to the Wii U gamepad, Navigating each level and locating your units is a breeze. All it takes is a glance at the gamepad to keep track of everything, a swipe of the touchscreen to quickly scan the area. It all comes together to create something fantastic. The bosses haven't been overlooked either. A significant portion of this game's development time must have gone into creating bosses of an equivalent level of engagement. The first boss you fight is a giant scorpion with a crystalline shell protecting it. 
you'll need to break through its armor with rock pikmin and deal damage while making sure your pikmin don't get scooped up and eaten. It tests your knowledge of puzzle solving and combat in the heat of the moment. This is what the bosses are best at. In the fight with the Scornet Maestro, you have to create openings in its swarm. Otherwise your pikmin will be scooped up and you'll have to free them. That's a test of combat, but in order to make those openings you need to effectively use the new flying pikmin type, which excel in airborne combat. The bosses also have this great sense of scale, so even when you're not thinking critically about them, it's easy to be impressed. I think the Quaggled Mireclops is the definitive example of this. It's literally an island on legs, and the area itself is absolutely beautiful. Like seriously, look at the lighting, look at the water effects. There aren't many Wii U games that look this good. Scaling this thing isn't easy. In an effort to take down each leg, you need to make sure that your Pikmin don't get stomped on or drown in the aftermath of mud. Therefore, you need to decide which Pikmin would be best to send out and when. It isn't easy to avoid potential losses because of how fast this thing can move, so you need to make every second count. As far as I know, all of these bosses will reward you with a massive fruit and a clue towards your next objective. So even if you spend days trying to take them down for one reason or another, your reward will make the tiresome battle seem worth it. Speaking of which, we need to talk about Pikmin 3's primary mechanic. The one thing that aims to create tension, like the ship parts or the caves. Essentially, you'll need to harvest the fruit lying around levels to create juice. Some fruit fill half a bottle, others fill two bottles. Every night you'll drink one bottle of juice. See where I'm going with this? You'll need to create a juice buffer, and since there's no day limit, you need to stay on top of your fruit supply no matter what you do. This restores the sense of urgency that was lacking in Pikmin 2. And it simultaneously isn't as strict as the original game. That's why finding a big juicy lemon after fighting a boss or solving a tricky puzzle is so rewarding. It's what keeps you alive. The game also balances the possibility of creating a large buffer by separating your crew members and forcing you to come back together before you can find more fruit. It creates large levels that force you to overextend and think with your three captains in tandem. After recovering Louie and keeping him prisoner aboard the SS Drake, he ends up stealing all the fruit and running away. This means you're back to square one and it's a mad dash to the nearest and least tricky fruit to retrieve before you starve. All of this hits hard on your initial playthrough. It's a great system. What I think is most impressive about this system is that it balances both of the previous game's philosophies. We've discussed how it emulates the race to stay on top of your workload in Pikmin 1, but it also mirrors the avid collecting of Pikmin 2. While this game lacks caves with a labyrinthine structure like that game, it's still rewarding to go out of your way and find the rare fruit in a level due to the challenge of such a task. It's a long, arduous path to some of these fruits. They're blocked by complicated puzzles and hordes of enemies. It feels similar to that game, and yet it maintains urgency. If you spend too long retrieving the fruit, the day will end, and you'll have to dwindle your juice supply down further. This urgency was something that I felt Pikmin 2 needed in order to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with its predecessor. And now we have the best of both worlds. All things considered, Pikmin 3 has everything it needs to be my favorite game in the series. So, why isn't it then? Well, I find that its resource management system doesn't hit nearly as hard on subsequent playthroughs. It's not like I'm constantly trying to beat my previous time like I am with the first game, pushing the tension further and further away because I'm improving. Instead, I'm just gathering fruit faster and more efficiently as I progress, which results in me having a ridiculous juice buffer. This completely destroys the urgency that was initially established by the system. While I was gathering footage for this video, I managed to reach about 20 bottles of excess juice or something like that by the end of the game. Even if you decide to take the completionist route with each playthrough, that just means you'll have an even larger backstock of juice. 
Even Louis stealing all your juice doesn't hit nearly as hard. It's a shame that this system can't retain its importance for multiple playthroughs. It works in the game's favor for first-timers, but not for veterans. And that's where Pikmin 3 unfortunately drops the ball. Both the first and second game actually become more enjoyable with each playthrough, but instead, Pikmin 3 deteriorates. It's an incredibly well-designed game, no doubt about that, but it's unfortunately best enjoyed with a single playthrough. Although, there is one part of the game that maintains the system's importance, and that's the final level, the Formidable Oak. After apprehending Louie a second time and retrieving their juice supply, the three explorers attempt to retrieve an unconscious Captain Olimar. But then, a massive gelatinous monster chases them down. The whole level has you splitting the workload between the three captains as you attempt to escape the tree from the inside. One managing Olimar, the other two finding shortcuts and exits to eventually make it back outside. It's a sprawling cave that tests you on the resourcefulness and dexterity you've accumulated up to that point. Here's the real kicker though. Because there aren't any fruit in this level, your juice supply will dwindle by the day. If you spend too long trying to get out, you just might run out of juice. Of course, you could always retreat to another level and find more fruit, but you'd better know where to find that fruit, otherwise you're just delaying the inevitable. Of course, even this philosophy has its flaws. As you can see, by the time I had escaped, I had around 20 juice bottles left. That's just an unavoidable problem with Pikmin 3. On subsequent playthroughs, it becomes rather simple to just collect juice bottles, defeating the purpose of this final level. And on top of that, you can go back to previous days to give yourself a fresh start. It's kind of broken. So as you can see, the final level and its philosophy has flaws, just like the rest of the game does. The final boss here, however, that's another story. It'll still drain your juice supply because it takes a while to kill, but this thing will diminish your Pikmin population more than anything if you're not prepared. This creepy thing known as the Plasm Wraith will divide itself into various forms at once, and it's up to you to divide your Pikmin accordingly. As the goo lies on the ground, you'll need to destroy it so the Wraith can't reform. The Wraith will also skewer your Pikmin at unprecedented speeds, so you have to keep them away from it in addition to balancing several hazards. It makes for one of my favorite bosses in Pikmin history. In fact, it probably is my favorite. It's intense, its length is warranted considering the context, and it directly attacks your resources. And then, it's over. After nine years of waiting, Pikmin 3 ends in a matter of hours. Some might say it was worth it, some wouldn't. As for me, I think it's an incredible game. It relays the same messages I have lauded the series for portraying up to this point, it evolves the formula in a respectable manner even if its methods aren't perfect, and it heightens the combat and level design to create something that I think virtually anyone can enjoy. Had I stuck to one playthrough, it might have remained my favorite game in the series. But being fair and thorough is what I'm all about. I don't mean to discourage those that consider Pikmin 3 their favorite. I completely understand. More so than Pikmin 2 if that wasn't already obvious enough. Still, one question remains. How's the co-op? Is this a step in the right direction for something I want so badly? Obviously the campaign this time around would be busted wide open with co-op because you'd be able to gather more fruit at once but there is a mission mode in which co-op takes center stage. Honestly, it's only a mild step above Pikmin 2's co-op levels, with focused objectives and rankings depending on your performance, but there is a boss battle component to this mode as well. Due to the scale of each boss and how they utilize various Pikmin types at once, co-op works wonders in boss fights. Since Nintendo is capable of designing boss fights that compensate for multiple players, I have no doubt that a primary game mechanic could be designed around multiple players too. 
Something that drives tension without breaking the game's design. Man, I really want this to happen. I would kill for a co-op Pikmin game. Anyway, while the mission mode may be fairly unremarkable, the versus mode is the opposite. It's fantastic. It's called Bingo Battle. You need to collect the designated fruit or enemy type in order to make a line on your bingo card. To counteract the work your opponent is doing, you can collect an item that they need and prevent them from crossing it off on their bingo card. It's a mad dash for each item, and things can get hectic very quickly, especially if you both end up looking for the same thing. It's based more on resourcefulness and exploration, plus there's that random factor in every battle that could give you a perfect line. Bingo Battle is pretty incredible. It's substantially better than Pikmin 2's underwhelming tug-of-war multiplayer mode, and if Bingo Battle were to have online multiplayer, the game's longevity would be increased significantly in my eyes. Unfortunately, not every person will be able to try this mode out, but if you have a friend that likes Pikmin... Well, the two of you have probably already played this mode if that's the case. But that's all there is to say about Pikmin 3. A lovely game that tried its damnedest to live up to expectations. And I personally believe it did. What's next for Pikmin? Well, remember when I was talking about vaporware and the importance of transparency from developers? And that whole nine-year gap between Pikmin 2 and Pikmin 3? Yeah, we're living through that again. And it's much worse now. Pikmin 3 didn't sell very well for a number of reasons. For one, it was on a console that barely anyone cared about. Throughout the console's roughly 5-year lifespan, it sold a measly 13 million units, only outselling the poor old Sega Dreamcast by 3 million, despite having two extra years of life. In contrast to the Wii U's 13 million units in 5 years, the Nintendo Switch has sold 32 million units in 2 years, decimating sales records and outselling Nintendo's own GameCube and Nintendo 64. And it's bound to keep going. If Pikmin 3 had been released on the Switch, who knows what would have happened. Even obscure games tend to have a large audience on the Switch, so a first party Nintendo release should enjoy at least some success no matter what it is. Well, there's no use thinking about what could have been. Pikmin 3 released during that dark era for Nintendo, and there's no changing that. Regardless of all that though, Miyamoto still confirmed that another Pikmin game would be released. As the phenomenal Pikmin short films were released in 2014, Miyamoto said something that gave fans hope. Continually launching campaigns after the release of software will lay the groundwork for the next iteration of Pikmin in the future. And needless to say, we want it to be one of the motivations for potential consumers to purchase a Wii U. We are making a variety of different efforts. A couple of months after that, Miyamoto further reassured fans of Pikmin by saying he still had a lot of ideas. This was similar to what he said in 2007, which was about a year before Pikmin 3 was officially announced. Looks like things weren't slowing down at all, and Miyamoto still felt motivated enough to continue working on the series. Then, a mere nine months after this interview, he said something that would tear the world asunder. It's actually very close to completion. Pikmin teams are always working on the next one. Okay, so what the heck is he talking about? 
How does a Pikmin game go from barely being conceptualized to near completion in nine months? At the time, no one knew what to make of this news. We had seen nothing of the game, and suddenly there's confirmation that it's almost done? Nothing was heard about this game that was supposedly near completion until almost a year later at E3 2016. When Miyamoto was asked about the project, he had this to say, when we're in development, we have to create a list of priorities, and it has been kind of hard to fit Pikmin 4 into that list. But we're hopefully starting to see that on the list now. Okay, they've had a few setbacks. At the time, the Switch was gearing up for a worldwide launch and Breath of the Wild needed the development team's full attention. Pikmin 4 would resume development after all this was said and done, right? Well, maybe. Miyamoto said something at E3 2017 that caught my attention. I've been told not to share anything about this from PR, but I can tell you it is progressing. The part that excites me is that he was told not to say anything. Why would PR have Miyamoto stay tight-lipped on the project if they had nothing to share? Perhaps the game is far enough along that we'll finally see it soon. Well, it's been two years since then. As of this video, that's all we've heard from Miyamoto about Pikmin 4. It's ended up in a similar cycle of repetitive answers and subsequent radio silence that Half-Life 2 Episode 3 had faced for years on end. These two games are a case study in what happens when you announce something too far in advance. There's still one question left, though. What was Miyamoto talking about when he said the next Pikmin game was close to completion? Well, hindsight is a tool I'm very grateful to have, because what's most likely here is that he was talking about Hey Pikmin, a spin-off title that was unceremoniously plopped onto the 3DS about two years after the interview. This game is not worthy of having a dedicated section in this video, I'm gonna be honest. Hey Pikmin isn't a bad game, but it's pretty unremarkable as a 2D action puzzle game. Combat is laughably bare, and puzzles boil down to having the right Pikmin for the job, or having enough Pikmin for a secret path. It also gives you hand cramps because you have to hold the DS in one hand and the stylus in the other. It's got Kid Icarus Uprising Syndrome. Great game, but the control scheme just doesn't work well with the console. I recorded this footage using Citra, as you can probably tell by the mouse cursor I forgot to hide. And that's because playing this game with a keyboard and mouse feels way better. You don't have to grip an entire console with one hand while mashing the touchscreen in the other. But even Citra's superior control schemes can't save this game from being slightly above average at best. I was willing to keep playing it because I was starved for Pikmin content. I can't imagine how painful it must be for people who have been with Pikmin for almost 20 years. Ignoring the close-to-completion comment, the lack of proper information on the next Pikmin game is very disheartening. I really don't want to be strung along by the faint hope that another game will eventually come out. I've already gone through that with Half-Life, and it hurts. It hurts so much. But at the same time, Miyamoto goes to E3 every year. If people want answers, all they have to do is ask. Ask again and again. Demand transparency, because as we know, even Nintendo is more likely to be transparent about projects than Valve. But two E3s have passed us by and nothing has been said about Pikmin. Is it a matter of public interest being too low? Am I the crazy one here for wanting more Pikmin? I guess there's no way of knowing, really. Pikmin has never been a priority for Nintendo. It's merely a passion project for Miyamoto. And even then, he has unfortunately stepped away from game development to become creative fellow for corporate Nintendo supervising projects like the Super Nintendo World Amusement Park and the Mario movie. A new Pikmin game becomes less likely as the days go by, and all we can really do now is wait. If there's one thing I've learned from making this video, it's that Pikmin games must be very hard to make. All three games capture the feeling of isolation, resource management, and urgency in various ways. They portray war and the destruction of our planet differently, 
Coming up with a gameplay concept that conveys these feelings without compromising fun is exceptionally difficult, and I have to applaud the developers for trying. This is probably why it takes so long for Pikmin games to release. They take careful consideration to execute properly. If waiting means we'll get a Pikmin game that succeeds in conveying all this, while capturing the hearts of each game's specific fan bases, then that's fine. I want Pikmin games to be more like the first one, just like Pikmin 2 fans want the next game to be more like their favorite game, and etc. I'd like to believe they're cooking something up behind the scenes, but there's no way of truly knowing what's next for Captain Olimar and friends. Even though I just got into the series, I feel like I finally understand the pain Pikmin fans have endured over the years. My experience with the lack of Half-Life news over the past 12 years, combined with my hunger for more Pikmin content, has made it much easier to empathize. I can't reassure them that they'll have something new to play soon, or that it'll be good, but at least I can make this video. That's what it's all about, right? As long as the discussion persists, Pikmin won't be going anywhere anytime soon. Tell your friends about Pikmin. Show them what it's all about. Even if we never get another Pikmin game, the original three will never cease to exist. Pikmin will live on as long as we continue to talk about it. In fact, that's a great idea. Let's talk about it right now. Maybe from a great big discussion, we'll be able to glean the future of the series. But in order to do so, I'm gonna need some help. Hello, I'm Scruffy, and my favorite game in the series is Pikmin 2. It experiments with all the ideas hatched in Pikmin 1 to give you interesting enemies to fight, new puzzles to solve, and a ton of unique items to collect. And the added charm of scientific journals and diaries on those subjects is what wins me over. If I had to pick a favorite Pikmin game, uh, it would without a doubt be Pikmin 3, just because of how it balances some of the stuff from the first two games. Uh, like for instance, it has this time limit that adjusts based on your playstyle, so if you're just following the story non-stop, you also need to multitask really well and collect fruit on the same days, but if you just want to build sort of a buffer of fruit, then you can do that and then play through the story with ease while you have like 30 days of fruit uh, in your bank, sort of. Of the Pikmin series, I would say that one is my favorite. Pikmin 1 does something that the other games don't, whereas the other games feel like a very basic but very engaging RTS combat experience. Pikmin 1 is very much an RTS game focused around survival. There's this sort of bleak atmosphere around Olimar and his quest to restore his ship to power before his time limit runs out. And that makes every day and every action all the more meaningful. You have some of these caves where it's just like you just don't know what to expect. You have caves like the Submerged Castle or there, there's one where it's literally just a boss rush of every boss in the game. And you don't know that when you go in. So you just go in and then you're just fighting a boss. And you're like, oh. Pikmin's known for having some anxiety inducing gameplay, but Pikmin 3 never made me feel that way. It's a wonderfully charming game that I often go back to to replay. The thing that keeps me coming back to Pikmin has always been its world. I've always been in love with the setting of the game being our own world but from a microscopic view. It channels that whimsical, childlike perspective of the world where adventures can happen right in one's backyard. In fact, when I was in elementary school, my friends and I would play Pikmin at recess and explore the playground while role-playing our own Pikmin campaign. The world of Pikmin is so interesting and vibrant and uh, weird to the point where I'd thoroughly like to explore every aspect of the game. Each environment is well-crafted, uh, all the creatures are unique, and under the threat of a time limit, such as needing to find fruit 
before you starve or fixing your ship before you run out of oxygen. I think that's a hindrance to exploration. And so as someone who really likes to explore games and see all they have to offer, I'd say Pikmin 2 is my favorite Pikmin game. Also, I love the Pikwipedia's music. Emotionally speaking, I have never played a game as good at conveying the harsh realities of our world as Pikmin. It takes a lot of maturity to convey war, death, environmental deterioration, isolation, and famine through characters as cute as the ones in Pikmin. But they did, and they did so quite well. The gameplay complements this beautifully, even if the design philosophy changes with each game. Playing iterations of the first game is not my kind of thing, so I'm glad that each game in the series uniquely presents its concepts without any sort of compromise, even if I may not agree with every decision they've made. For that, I will continue to replay Pikmin for years to come, because there's really nothing else like it. My kids will play it someday, even if the games are ancient by then and we're putting chips in our brains to control Mario or something. All I know is, Pikmin is worthy of anyone's time. People may look to other games for examinations of war and isolation, but don't worry. Pikmin's got you covered. And with that, I've been Liam Triforce, and I'd like to thank you for watching.